0: This week on Dig Me Out.
1: With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minici.
2: Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Jay, we're back with another roundtable discussion. Patron selected, patron-fueled, patron-provided. I don't know how you want to put it, but uh, our patrons voiced their opinion during our April poll when we put out some options. We did Festivals of the 90s. That was the winner. And then the second place was Origins, which we have done previously with Modest Mouse and Spoon. And everybody, pretty much everybody who said, if you're going to do an Origins episode, you should do Muse. So we said, okay. And Jay, you're familiar with Muse, right?
3: You've heard of them. For the little band? Little, yeah. Yeah, I, I've <laughs> been aware since the 90s (laughs) yes so
2: and we'll get into how we discovered the band along with our guests all returning guests all said i want to be a part of this episode when we posted about it and a fan joining us on this episode from i'll start let me see if i can do this correctly i tried to do it alphabetically one time and i completely screwed it up let's go alphabetical (laughs) last names joining us Previously joined us for the Albums of 2019 Roundtable, Marissa Boxbaum. Welcome back, Marissa.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: When did you discover Muse?
1: Oh, Muse were officially like my second all-consuming teenage rock band obsession, the first being The Who, but um, I saw the music video for Hysteria in high school I think it was probably late in 2004, or early 2005, because I used to get home and immediately turn on Fuse, and I was mesmerized. Like that's the adjective I was used. Uh, I would use. I just could not get over that bassline or that riff, and I went out and bought Absolution, and that was the start of a burgeoning love affair, much to my parents' dismay, because they both find the band completely loathsome. My dad, in <laughs> particular. <laughs> hmm.
2: <laughs> i i will say i did actually try to play stockholm syndrome for my dad because he's a guitarist and i was like listen to this guitar solo and he just kind of looked at me like why would you do this to me
1: <laughs> yeah um my dad like wants them dead which is part of a larger funnier more heartwarming anecdote that maybe i can share at some point down the line but yeah i was the I was the quintessential Muse super fan as a teenager, and I am now a a Muse fan with caveats, a, a Muse fan with small print to make a stupid joke.
2: <laughs> I got it. I already screwed up the alphabetical thing because I didn't I didn't calculate the the vowels correctly. Whitney Beeler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Joined us on previous episodes. Uh, March joined us for the American Highway Flower. Uh, by Dada, Sophomore Slump Revisited. Joined us in March as well for Caviar. And then also for previous episodes on Third Eye Blinds, Sophomore Slump Revisited for Blue, Human Radio, The Tories. Lots of good stuff there.
4: Tell us, Whitney, uh, when did you discover Muse? Uh, I was looking back through their albums, and I it was Black Holes and Revelations was when I started listening to them a little bit. And that was so. I'm a little bit late to the party, I guess, right in the middle. Um, just liked a couple songs on that album, and just started listening and really enjoyed it. But I never really went backward and forward to any great extent. Um, I will say, uh, you know, I've made a lot of attempts to dig into their music because I think it's in my wheelhouse, and they they just seem like they're really stellar musicians. Um, I really like The Resistance a lot. That's probably my favorite Muse album right now. I've never really paid much attention to showbiz, but the uh, Origin of Symmetry and Absolution are pretty neat records, and I need to uh, probably spend a little more time with those um, albums. But I really like them. They're, just, uh, they're, they're not like one of my go-to bands, but they're just, uh, they just seem really... They're one of those bands that's really professional and really awesome musicians. So I, 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 I've spent some time with them, and they probably deserve more of my time.
2: Yes, Especially if you're doing a podcast on him.
4: <laughs> no, this will be fine, believe me. I'll I'll carry my I'll carry my water here. Excellent. Also joining us.
2: He was just here. Gosh, it wasn't even a month ago. Darren Leach. <laughs> two
5: weeks ago, I believe. Yeah.
2: That's the fastest rebound we've ever had in terms of uh I think you just missed a week or two. Welcome back to the show. How's it been? How's the last Thank two weeks th- been for you?
5: <laughs> <laughs> Not much has changed. <laughs> Still we're still in lockdown. Yeah. Yes, we are,
2: um, and of course, you brought to us recently the even album, which was uh, either preceded or or followed by the odds album, which is one of the greatest coinciden- coincidences in the history of this podcast to so have those two uh, lined yes. up. And then also last year, the uh, UMI our second UMI album, Hi-Fi Way, after we had done Sound as Ever in the um, early years, and. How did you discover Muse, Darren?
5: So back in back in 1999, um, I was uh, a reviewer for a university paper. So I'm thinking I discovered them then when cause CD singles were a big thing in Australia. Um, I don't think they were big in America. So we would get CD singles all the time with all the B-sides. Um, I'm pretty sure I reviewed Cave. So Cave for me is one of my favorite songs by the way intro if man that that's up there with like acdc and all of that kind of thing
1: so. oh you too cave is also like my one showbiz yeah. track so yeah
5: In the industry, I, I've worked with um, the record companies, so I would be. I like the band. They would ply me material, you know, albums, uh, you know, international singles, and all that kind of thing. And I was a collector back then, and so that's how I, I discovered them. I've got more of a story, which uh, we can get into later when, when they toured Australia in October 2000.
2: So. Excellent. Yes, we will when we get into the record. I have to. I,
4: yes, I have to tell Darren something. Umi and Even were like two awesome recommendations. By the way,
5: thank you. I had to get I tried, that in. I, I tried to give good to the world. <laughs> you did. Thank you. Yeah,
3: and and I've seen Whitney Scrabble, so I know he's listening to it. <laughs>
5: there you go. <laughs> um, the, the can I just do a, a quick quick side story? Sure. Um, I do you remember Finiscad? Uh, the album that I I think that was the first album that I gave to you guys. Um, yes. Um, one of the members, just the other day, I'm talking like Wednesday, emailed me to say, hey Darren, I heard you like Finiscad, here's my new solo track. And I went, are you kidding? And I told <laughs> him about your podcast to check it out. So Neat. Awesome. That's, that's pretty I, cool. I, I couldn't believe it. I went, no way.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I do want to mention, since we're uh, talking with our patrons, we have some new patrons who have joined us. Need to thank... Uh, Tom Hicks and John Colucci, who have joined us at the uh, two dollar level, and then Chris Bishop, a new 1350 level patron. And then of course, I don't know if I remember I don't remember if I mentioned last time last episode uh, Christian Sibol or Ciboll, Uh thanks for joining us at the nineteen 1950 level. He's got all the stuff going on there. And then Marissa, thank you for jumping up to the 13 greatly appreciate the support uh,
1: you're welcome yeah i now now the 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 means to do so yeah
2: <laughs> um jay We're looking forward to the pick yeah looking forward no pressure you know, you know some people spend a year thinking about their pick just want to point throw that out there <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah i i'm i think almost everything that they- Funnily enough, uh, my husband a few weeks ago said, hey, remember that hit in the 90s about Salmon Rushdie and, the, and, and like the Forest Ranger? And I said, what are you talking about? A- apparently, my husband, any any noteworthy song that he likes and remembers is a hit, but it was Plexi. And you guys reviewed that record and we went back to listen to the episode and it was fantastic episode i think you actually had the, the the guys from the band on for it and it was fantastic it would have been one of my picks but you've already done it <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh yeah that was a long time ago wow yeah we had the michaels on michael uh angelos and um i remember the last guys the other guys name starts with a b It was michael a and michael b but uh damn that was a long time ago 10 years probably jay 10 or 9 or 10 years if you want to feel old i don't thank you yes Jay how I want to I want to take a shot in the dark here. You discovered Muse either via Limewire or Napster, one of those like one of those situations no. or at the listening booth at the Virgin Megastore?
3: Uh yeah, it was probably at the big box store route, either you know the end bins at um Best Buy when they were uh pushing CDs hard and uh either yeah, Virgin Megastore something like that. I mean, this album got quite a bit of promo early on when it was released so yeah. um i i was pretty i mean it may have been the week it came out became aware of them um so it was pretty early on um not not the ep era um so yeah definitely soon as Showbiz was was out i became aware of them heard some snippets here and there and it was right in my wheelhouse
2: i believe our local radio station cd 101 at the time now cd 102.5 was playing muscle museum pretty heavily Around that time, like they were pushing this album. I don't think, like, like you said, I don't think they or I was aware of the band um, when the EPs came out in in um, ninety eight. But I definitely, when the album came out, was right on it. And that was when I was going to the Virgin Megastore and buying like the Enemy and Q magazine and and a lot of the imported British magazines at the time. So it was like aware it just gotten into Manic street preachers and you know a lot of the a lot of the mid to late 90s uh british bands after oasis and, and blur had blown up so yeah so this was definitely in that same sort of wheelhouse i don't remember where i bought it though i don't i don't know if it was like like you said at a big box or if it was at one of the local record stores probably at it was probably virgin mega store i'm guessing because I was, I worked with, within walking distance of it. So let's get into the record. Well, first let's talk about... So th- I mentioned there were two EPs that came out. Muscle Museum was immediately preceded Showbiz. And it has uh, six tracks, three of which are on the album. Uh, Muscle Museum, Sober, Four. and Unintended.
5: Uh, Uno was as well. Oh,
2: yeah, Uno was well. on the album. Okay, so... Am I right? Are all four of those on the album? Correct. Okay. Yep. And then the previous EP, which is just titled Muse, that came out in May of 98. It was on Dangerous Records, and that has Overdue, Cave, Coma, and Escape. And from that one, only uh, Cave is on the record, Right.
1: Oh, Overdue is
5: no, no, on three. the record. Oh, no, Overdue is the only one not on it. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I, I think Coma is the only one that, that was omitted. Yeah,
5: right. But um, Overdue is four minutes, while on the album it's like two minutes 20. So it's much longer on the EP. So,
2: yeah, I was wondering if there are different mixes or if it's just an entirely different recording. Like, if, if when they made Showbiz, they just re recorded some of the songs. the record because i i know that there is is there a different version of muscle museum or is that this is that the album version on there
5: it's pretty similar both the same about the same length um most of them are just re-records while overdue they they just added uh, some lyrics but musically they're pretty much the same gotcha
2: so let's go around let's do this like an album let's talk about what works on showbiz for each of us gotta pick, pick out a highlight for you. Um, Whitney, I'll start with you. you So you've just gotten into showbiz, right? In terms of listening. This was not something you were listening to for a long period beforehand.
4: No, it's not. Um, it just started listening to it recently. Um I, you know, I'm good with it. I like it. It's um the more I listen to it, you know, as usual, the more songs you they start developing a personality and and they don't quite sound as similar, which I have to admit they did the first couple of times. But you know, to really like something, you need to spend some time with it. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point with this album, but I do really appreciate the way that that this is a really good debut because it helps them kind of step into their later and what I think are kind of better releases. Um, it's got some songs I really like, like "Sober," "Escape," "Overdue," um, and it, it's just uh, I, I'm I'm not hearing as much here. Like, and I guess I get to bring it up because you asked me first. It doesn't remind me of Queen. Okay, it it's got kind of a Our Lady Peace vibe on it. Maybe a, I notice a couple songs that, uh, like, um, let's see, which one is it? Uh, like, Escape kind of sounds like a little Nirvana to me. Like, they could have it could have been something Nirvana might have come up with. Um, overall, I like that album quite a bit, and it really kind of sets up the later stuff pretty well.
2: Okay, Marissa, what works best for you on Showbiz?
1: um honestly everything it's funny to me because muse is pretty cagey about the record these days or at least they don't seem to feel it represents them fully as a band but i honestly listen to it more than origin of symmetry which is i think widely regarded by musers as being the magnum opus or at least one of them um and i think absolution is the real masterpiece album as like a single piece of work is concerned and and Black Holes and Revelations, which I guess is, is Whitney's favorite, is sort of the, the fully realized muse where they establish themselves as an arena rock band and where more of the queen sort of comparisons would come in. But for me, Showbiz contains easily some of my favorite muse songs of all time, Cave, uh, Fantastic, that's got to be in my like top 15, Showbiz itself, the title track, Sober, Uno, Muscle Museum, um, and I also like would want to call attention to Falling Down, because to me that's one of those songs that I'm shocked an 18-year-old kid wrote. That's like an I-absolutely-know-what-I'm-doing-caliber kind of song, and it's maybe the first indication of what they were going to become 10 years down the line.
0: I was c- See?
1: I think Matt Bellamy himself is a really capable pop songwriter and him becoming more confident in that regard is part of why we have the post-2006 muse and why that sounds so appreciably different from the muse that you hear on Showbiz. And they like they play very little of Showbiz Live these days. It's almost entirely absent from set lists after, I want to say, 2010, 2011.
2: Hmm. Darren, what works best for you on Showbiz?
5: For me, it's the, uh, as I said earlier, the riffs that really got me in. So anything quite riffy, because the album for me is around Matt Bellamy's riffs, you know, Um, and his vocal style. but For me, I think the riff came first and then the vocals came second. So, you know, tracks like Muscle Museum, Sunburn, Cave, uh, even Sober, like, um, take away the singles and you've got... Great, you know, album cuts. For me, what didn't work is, for me, the slower songs, I know, unintended, it was a single. I didn't understand why that was a single. Um, I I get that he is um, working on his voice and his vocal style, but for me, that was, it was too falsetto. For me, it just, it grinds me a little bit. So, um, yeah, for for me, it, it was just the riffs. That's what really got me in. To the album and I, I think it's still great today. For me the second album I feel was a step down I just didn't think it was Ooh. good Ooh. Yeah I know, controversy I don't know I, I thought there was some filler I, it was like, because don't forget this tour, they didn't stop then they released a second album and then they toured, basically it was a four year tour um, then they finally took a mini break and then for me Absolution is their best by far but that's my opinion anyway, so.
1: I'm shocked to hear that someone doesn't like Origin as much as Showbiz. No, I mean, I, I listen I, to show, I do. Showbiz more, but...
5: Yeah, no, I do like I just find there's some weaker tracks. There's the cover on it. I don't think the cover works that well.
1: No. Cover is in, like, the album cover or Feeling Good by Nina
5: Simone? Feeling Good.
1: Okay, I, th- I thought that might be the case. I just wanted to be certain I,
5: I love their artwork. I think it's fantastic across all the albums, even the albums I don't like. I think their artwork is absolutely fantastic. But I remember Triple J in Australia. They played them a lot. You know, they were pushed heavily in Australia, which I think is great because they kept touring and touring. And I was happy that they they toured a lot because live they were they were absolutely, a, you know, a beast. Um, but um, yeah, that cover for me just didn't didn't do it. They Triple J murdered that cover. So yeah. I just kept playing it.
2: Hmm. Interesting, Jay. Yes, I know. I'm. I know. <laughs> when you when this record came out, you were like, yeah. "Finally, Radiohead rocks again." Like,
3: <laughs> yeah,
2: that was basically your. I remember you getting being like, "Well, why? Like, why can't Radiohead do this anymore? Like, yeah, why can't they rock? Why do they have to noodle around and and have dance beats?" and um so what works best for you on this record
3: yeah it was it was fun to go back i hadn't listened to this in a while i'm um you know i've kept up with the band i if i'm going to go back to a record it's probably going to be the farthest back that would go is origin um so it was fun to go back to this what brought me in originally yeah was they are definitely on the eps and this record uh, they take that um, the 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 rock portions of OK Computer and the bends and turn them up to twenty, um, which I thought was really cool at the time. Um, I'm able to hear now, though. I think the secret weapon of the band, which is the bass player, uh, and I think Chris, what's his last name Hol- Holstenholm,
1: Holstenholm.
3: Holstenholm. As- he, I mean, he's emerged. I think as the band has evolved, they become, um, I think even more reliant on, on his bass parts. And I think the bombast of, you know, Matt Bellamy's guitar playing and vocals on this record, um, can overshadow him. But now that I go back and, and listen to it, I'm more tuned into what he brings to the band. I mean, something like muscle museum, you know, that bass line is just the way that bass line and that guitar, that weird guitar part come together. It's, It doesn't sound like anybody else it's like this weird minstrel sounding like highly competent very specific you know kind of sound i think um you know here you hear him come through on uno you know it's got this like almost tango feel to it
0: Could have been
3: Yeah, you know, they're just bringing in these baselines, um, to ba- to put these songs on top of that, are just fundamentally different than than most other bands at the time. Um, and I think he continued to be the rock that they that they build on top of, um, going forward. So I, I really liked, you know, really uh, having that perspective now and listening to this record and and kind of going beyond just Matt Bellamy, which which again he. He is especially on this album vocally just so over the top. <laughs> um and sometimes it works and other times it's a little too far. And I think he's been able to over the years kind of figure out what his voice is and um and kind of rein it in a little bit. So it's it's easy to to miss the rest of the band, I think, on this record. Um so I, I really enjoyed going back and, and having that that perspective I have on them now and, and breaking it down even further and I I don't think there's a bad song on this record for me. I uh, I do think the slower songs aren't quite of the quality that they would later become. The guitar playing is groundbreaking in a lot of ways. You know, he does take the some of the chaos that Radiohead would bring on OK Computer, but then he brings this almost Eddie Van Halen level of musicianship to it as well. Um so I think he's probably one of the more important guitar players of the last 20 years. So you, you've got definitely that all over the record. And you start to hear a little bit of the Queen, I think, influence on the band on this record that also stood out to me that I don't think I heard at the time. Uh, it took me a couple, I think, a couple records to really, for me hear the Queen connection start to come through. But you can hear it, you know, here and there. So yeah, I, I, I ended up liking this, I think, on a revisit more than more than maybe I thought I would. I thought it would be more dated than some of the other records.
5: I'd I'd agree with the the Queen because I was listening to it again the last couple of days, and I still to this day do not get the Radiohead connection. Maybe I'm deaf or something, but even I remember at the time everyone compared them to to Radiohead. I I don't get it. Like, I followed Muse, and I was into Radiohead. I was into the first three albums, and I'm the the guy that didn't get Kid A onwards. But, um, you know, I got Radiohead, but I didn't get the connection to Muse. But Queen, absolutely.
1: You know, I I love both bands, Muse and Radiohead, and yeah, that comparison was constant um, in the late 90s and early 2000s, but I have to say I'm fatally annoyed that people are are still making that comparison. And I honestly think it's just because both feature shrill, tiny Englishmen making anxious rock music with guitars and (laughs) occasionally electronics. I'm going to
5: put that on a, I'm going to put that on a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt.
1: Like, like Muse as the poor man's radio head is just the stock dismissal for people who don't like Muse, which, you know, I, I get it. I understand why Muse would be totally repellent to someone. They're occasionally repellent to me. It's it's a lot of wailing, screeching, overblown theatrics, but but you can hate Muse without being observably factually incorrect. There's like one Muse song that sounds like it belongs on the Bends and it's overdue. The 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 two bands are just coming at the whole thing from entirely different angles. Radiohead is uh, Radiohead is what happens when like Beatles and REM fans get into Penderecki. And, and Muse is what happens when your primary influences rage against the machine, but you're also like super into uh, Chopin and Berlioz and Rachmaninoff.
5: Um, can, can I? That's it. Well done for um, mentioning Rage Against the Machine. Um, so, some other stories I have. Um, when I was a music editor, I got to see their sound check for the 2000 tour in Australia, mm. and they actually played Rage Against the Machine during soundcheck. Wow. I was was very excited about that. And, um, I actually got to interview the band after soundcheck as well. So I got to interview Matt and Chris and, uh, what memory I have was they were really nice guys. Um, and they were answering every, every question, you know,
1: teenage me is like so jealous of you right now. (laughs) 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 And, and like, I mean, speaking of Rage Against the Machine, I also think it's it's worth noting that Muse were drawing so much from that reference pool of contemporaneous American rock music and grunge. Um, and like their tourmates in the early years, they opened for both the Foo Fighters and the Red Hot Chili Peppers at one point. Um, they've cited the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana as influences uh, explicitly in interviews. They even supported live as in like uh, like our love is throwing copper live um, in 1999 for a European tour. So, you know, the, the comparisons to Radiohead, I, I, I understand them from a cosmetic standpoint, but, but the band does not sound, at least to my American ears, distinctly British in a way that, like, a lot of their Britpop or, or post-Britpop contemporaries do around the late 90s and the, and the early 2000s. To, to me, they yeah. share much more genetic material with American rock groups.
5: I, I agree with that because I wrote down what I was listening to at the time, British-wise, and there's Feeder. Uh, yesterday went too soon, who supported Muse at this same Australian show. There was the Manichry Preachers, This Is My Truth, Placebo with You Are Nothing, the Stereophonics. Their second album, so and they sound nothing like any of those bands. So you get an album hit or, head, I think.
1: Or Elbow or Doves or Keen yeah, fucking Elbow. uh Coldplay and Snow Patrol were getting bigger around that time. Everything that like when I hear them, they I'm like, Oh yeah, that's that's from across the pond. But but Muse are like like you mentioned the riff, right? They're the riffs are so central to to showbiz. I feel like what defines Muse is their obsession with a great groove, a great riff, and so many of their best songs just completely organize themselves around that repetitive, rhythmic, melodic chunk. And like hysteria is the obvious example, even though that's later on, or newborn, or plug-in baby. But since this is origins of muse, there are uh, there are early tracks which were ultimately excluded from showbiz like yeah. agitated yes please jimmy kane these showed up as b-sides or on like foreign promotional releases or re- reworked later for later albums but um this is much, much much heavier stuff and if they had showed up on that first record um because they were steered away from including the heavier stuff on showbiz by by paul reeve maybe there'd be fewer of those, Radiohead comparisons, but um, I, I also I also have to forgive Paul Reeve because he was the one who encouraged Matt's um, totally unhinged vocal conniptions, which I I happen to love.
2: I will say, as someone who who did make the comparison, that they shed that comparison for me on the following record. Like they, then they became their own band. I think the comparison to Radiohead is to. It's really in in very specific sort of details the fact that Matt Bellamy can sing falsetto and get real high in the way that only Tom York and Jeff Buckley were doing in, in, in the 90s or the way that he can let his guitar go absolutely insane whereas when you listen to say The End of Just by Radiohead that's where those comparisons are and the fact that you know to the average listener they're not going well this this sounds like a british band but because jay and i were a little bit more tuned into what was going on and we were you know music nerds we knew they were a british band so i don't know that jay was like being derogatory when he said oh finally radiohead are rocking i think it was more like i really liked radiohead on those first two records yeah, and-, and then they stopped rocking so thank god somebody is doing like intelligent sort of forward thinking you know radio rock that that still rocks whereas okay yeah, no, while well, yeah. it's a great record doesn't rock the way that this does
1: yeah, yeah i no, mean and they were pretty at least i don't know how they um feel about it now but at least early on whenever it would come up in interviews they they were pretty sanguine about it they were like oh yeah being compared to radiohead that's you know great sure we like them and uh, I, I do, you know, I, I understand where it, where it comes from, certainly. I just feel like, yeah, it, they've, they've departed so significantly from that comparison holding any water now.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really isolated to the first record. And for me, it was just an entry point of after hearing Paranoid Android, like that was the basis at which I could under- start understanding what this band was doing. And then building from there, I'm with Tim by the, by the time Origin comes out. They're their own thing. And from that point forward, I think they've continued to be even more and more and more uh, their own thing and really define their own style.
4: I'm in the same place. Um, I'm just like, I loved the Benz. And then when OK Computer hit, I was kind of like, well, well, whatever. And the only reason, they, uh, to me, is it's all about the falsetto, right? I mean, it's an easy comparison to make. So that's the lazy one that most people make.
2: Right. I do think the Rage Against the Machine thing is really interesting because i hadn't thought about that being a contemporary influence but when you listen not only to uh, you know how matt bellamy plays how how he attacks the guitar but also the tone that he uses from time to time is very sharp it's like very trebly and and that that's occasionally what tom morello does like he doesn't His guitar tone is not always super bassy, which you think of as, like, a heavier rock band, like, has a fatter guitar tone. But Tom Morello's tone can be fairly thin at times, especially when he's doing leads and and whatnot. So
1: Yeah, he idolizes Tom Morello, just loves him. Mm.
2: Yeah. Mm.
3: And I could definitely see the the tie there and, like, the willingness to experiment um, with different types of guitar playing. Right, which Matt Bellamy has done. D- different ways of playing, different ways of tuning guitar, setting guitar up, amps, effects. Like he'll run the gamut in the same way that Tom Morello will, in terms of you know, reusing it as a tool to its fullest capability. What, um, Tim? Do you remember, um, or does anybody remember? Um, I know they did some club touring, but I'm pretty sure they did an arena tour in the U.S. opening for somebody, uh, for Showbiz.
2: Is that uh, when they opened for the Chili Peppers? Was
1: yeah, it the chili that would have been the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Foo Fighters, probably. Because Maverick, which was the American label that signed them, they, they couldn't get signed in the UK because UK labels thought, oh, here we go, Radiohead 2.0. Yeah. Um, they were promoted very heavily in the United States, and they accepted um, opening slots for larger and more established American rock bands.
2: I'm on um, setlist.fm, and I can tell you that they played in Columbus... So this comes out in 99. They played in 2000, opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers at Value City Arena in Columbus. And they played a very short set opening up. Like, they only did five songs. (laughs) According to this set. Uh, Yeah. And they only... It looks like, according to the set list, they played three songs acoustic and then played two more songs. So I don't know if that's the complete set list. But a number of people have chimed in that they were... At that set, what I find interesting about this is that I saw them when either Absolution or Black Holes and Revelations came out. They played Columbus every year from 2004 to 2006 at Promo West Pavilion, which then became like Lifestyle Community Pavilion. But that's pretty dedicated touring wise. They hit it 2004, 2005, 2006 on top of playing other Ohio venues in Cincinnati. They played Blossom. We can barely get bands to do one venue in Ohio and they are hitting every venue three times a year or you know, every year, three venues three times a year. That to me speaks to the fact that they were able to build such a huge American fan base is that they, they played the Kent Fieldhouse. They played in 2005, they played, um, you know, over and over again, Cincinnati, Columbus, Ohio, or Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland. They just kept hitting those Midwestern venues over and over again. Um, and like I said, I don't know if it was 2004 or 2005. I know it was when, I think it was prior to black hole. So I think it was when absolution was out and I saw them, at Promo West, and yeah,
1: Black Holes and Revelations was two thousand six, so right, you so probably been, saw them off the Absolution tour. Yeah,
2: yeah, it was either oh four or oh five that I saw them, and it was crazy. Like they had, you know, this massive light thing going on behind them, and there's only a, they're only a three piece, and yet they're they just sounded huge. Um, and I, I think they had like all their instruments like lit up at the time. Jay, did you yeah, did I, you ever see them live?
3: Yeah, I saw them on the Resistance tour. It was probably the most, like, just visual and production level, the most incredible show I've ever seen. Like, and I don't know, they were doing arenas at that time, and it sold pretty well. But, I mean, the production level seemed way beyond what a band of their level would be able to pull off. I mean, it, it just had these massive video screens that like transformed through the entire set and every song had a different set and he had this amazing like amp that spun around and like, yeah, the <laughs> bass player has lights on his bass, So like you can see, um, what he's playing, like it lights up as he's playing. It was just an amazing, and the drum set was constantly moving and it, it was unbelievable. Um, it, it, so it was a great show, but it was also like, wow, how are these guys affording this? I mean, I know they're, they're a pretty big band, but this is like, you know, major, major production costs to do something like this. Um, and, and have it touring around America in, it would have been probably 2010, 2009.
1: Um, what so was, me is that he was, uh, he, Matt Bellamy was destroying guitars every night. He destroyed a guitar on the absolution tour. um, I, I think he holds the Guinness World Record for greatest quantity of guitars destroyed in a single <laughs> tour, which is surprising <laughs> to me because I feel like you know Pete Townsend might have t- Pete Townsend might hold the record for all time, but but those are I don't know if he was pl- actually yeah 2004 2005 he was playing strictly Manson guitars these are like boutique guitars you mm-hmm. know 5k a pop probably and he's just you know. Launching them like a javelin into Marshall amps.
2: Maybe it's a business expense, and he can write it off.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this, this this was still when labels had you know money to money to run, sure. I guess
2: well, and and so that leads us into talking about them in in the two thousands. Obviously, uh, the band evolved. You know, we you, we can debate our our like or dislike of of Origin of Symmetry, but the the band uh, evolved with each album. Going into the 2000s, and while they were doing that, I mentioned they were they were pounding the pavement in the United States, which they were replicating around the world. I mean, I think Darren, you mentioned, or or I think it was you. They didn't stop touring for years. They just mm. kept going, kept releasing albums and releasing live albums. They were doing. Co- there was. Co- I remember there was this a period where like every couple of months there was either like an ep or a compilation or a live album There was just tons of stuff coming out and i was one of those people that was like picking up everything there aren't a lot of bands that i do that but i was like grabbing any thing that they were putting out when once origin of symmetry came out i went oh now i am locked in with this band now i, I completely get <laughs> what's going on because i had not heard guitar playing like like on plug-in baby and, and the stuff that he was doing on that record. I was tracking down UK singles, uh, CD singles, and, and anything I get my my paws on. What what is it? T- let's talk about their sort of their impact in the 2000s and, and how this band became probably the I would say inter- internationally speaking has got to be one of the most successful bands of the last 20 years in terms of touring. You know, they still consistently sell albums. They're consistently on radio. They have singles for every record. Marissa, you mentioned about Matt Bellamy's pop songwriting skill. And yeah. Can you get into that a little bit more?
1: Sure. Um, so I I came into Muse during Absolution, which is I think sort of the the transitional phase between what origin and showbiz was and what black holes and revelations would be and, and everything after that. Absolution is, I think, the band at their artistic peak. Um the I, I wish it would get remastered. Unfortunately it sounds um to me a little flat, but as as far as his Matt Bellamy's compositional skills and his arranging skills, it's really just a gorgeous record. It flows perfectly every it, it, it's just as as far as a single cohesive work to me it is it's really stunning but i do think that black holes and revelations which was 2006 is where matt came into his own as oh i i have these pop songwriting muscles that i want to flex and when i hear stuff like starlight which is just a gorgeous sort of U2-esque pop song almost, like. or Map of the Problematic has real U2 vibes to me. Um, Supermassive Black Hole. These are much more accessible to me, um, poppier songs than anything that they had done previously, which was a lot heavier, groovier. Uh, the singles off of Absolution where I think Hysteria, Time is Running Out, and Maybe Falling Away with You I don't remember exactly, and I think probably Apocalypse Please was released, Please was yeah, released but it time.
2: didn't
5: chart. Time is running yeah. out. Yeah,
1: yeah. and and, the, and those butterflies
5: and hurricanes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and and butterflies and hurricanes is is a very sort of proggy orchestral. It, it's. It's it's one of those um, it, it's it's much more sprawling than I think a lot of the stuff that they they would do afterward, which is a little more, um, as far as structure is concerned, pop like and pop oriented. But there's there's this and also this incredible continuity to to Muse, where for instance, the, in a in a making of featurette for Showbiz, Matt sits down at the piano. And what he's playing is the opening to Butterflies and Hurricanes, which would emerge, you know, four years later. And the riff to Psycho, which was released on drones in 2015, shows up in a live show in 2004. Like, he, he, never, he, I, I, he never disposes of a good riff or a good melody or a good idea. And... Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I I think Butter... uh, Sorry, not Butterflies and Hurricanes. Black Holes and Revelations was the album where the pop-accessible side of Muse and the hard-alternative side of them came together and actually worked. Whereas everything afterward, um, they, they attempted to replicate that formula with less success. So, like, I was really not a fan of The Resistance. There are a few tracks there that I like. The second law... It has some wonderful, wonderful songs, but after that, they just became, I don't know, they, they became less like the Muse that I fell in love with when I turned on Fuse that fateful day and saw Hysteria, uh, uh, the music video. So,
5: And I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, for me, resistance was a change. Yes, there's a couple of songs, but after that, I, I just stopped listening, and the second law, it just didn't grab me. And I, I, they're one of those bands that I do listen to every subsequent album, hoping they return to what I like in the first four albums. But for me, it just uh, they just disappoint now. And um, I, I get, I think Whitney likes likes those albums. And hey, fair enough, fair enough.
4: I like The Resistance. I think it's got a great flow to it. I think it's more commercial. And I'm, while I'm not necessarily into commercial music, you know, they're. They're grasping to sell some more records. They've, already, they've sold bajillion records anyways. But, I mean, yeah. it's just – it's a nice step towards a more commercial sound to me. Um, the second law, uh, while well, I can appreciate what they were trying to do with Madness, um, is just there wasn't enough there for me. Uh, drones was kind of cool. I thought that was uh, a different thing entirely. It felt a little more – I don't know how to explain it. A little more drones mainstream. Was sub-
1: supposed to be their quote-unquote return to form but i I don't know that i necessarily buy that
4: yeah it was i i don't i don't mind it and i mean like simulation theory there's good songs on it i think pressure's a great pop song um so i i need to spend more time some of the early stuff is probably more my speed than than the later stuff because that seems like a little bit reach for popularity Uh, But I don't want to be a fan. If I turn into a fanboy, I don't want to be a snob and say, oh, the first few albums are the only one that matters. You know, I I like when bands change it up and I like when they try different things, successful or not.
2: Um, I'll be that person who's the snob. Uh, Because I remember (laughs) I remember being at band practice. And our drummer was like, have you heard the new I think it was at Mark, our drummer said, have you heard the new Muse single? and he was like no and he played supermassive black hole i don't know if he had it like i don't know how he had it and i was like
5: this is a dance song what is this it was compared to it was compared to prince i remember back in the day
2: yeah and i remember sort of being a little weary do you remember that jay
3: yeah i think that song is to me it's the i see that as the tipping point for the band it's probably their biggest song as it was on the toilet soundtrack. And I think it got them quite a bit of exposure that way to a new, um, audience. And it is, yeah, it's definitely them putting a stake in the ground of going in more of a dance oriented direction at times. Um, I think the progression, so I listen to all their stuff. I definitely see like this really interesting, like thread of, of um refining the sound up through black holes and revelations and then you get in the resistance and it's, and it's kind of still in that direction but it's starts to double down even more pop and simplifying things from a like rhythm standpoint i think and then it just to me continues in that direction and i start to question you know with simulation theory like how much further can you go with that sort of refinement you started with, you know, showbiz, which was like everything, <laughs> like here's all the stuff we can do. And then from there, it feels like it gets more and more refined. And now we're at a point where uh I'm not f- sure how much further you can squeeze out of that without completely like starting over again or going in a just a totally different direction where it's maybe less dance oriented, less synthetic. I don't know, something.
1: Um th- But to me, have- that's. Sorry, go
3: ahead. ahead. No, just uh, I I think that that evolution. um, I think for the most part it's been successful, but I think the records get weaker and weaker, um, and you just got more singles. um, Mm Yeah, I was
1: was just gonna say they've they've become a phenomenal singles band. They have these incredible jaw dropping moments where, like, Panic Station is an incredible single um reapers has this just electrifying guitar work they they have really strong moments these days and they're still you know they're an absolutely compelling live band um i took a break seeing them live my first show was in 2005 uh when i was a kid and the last time i saw them was in 2017 and I queued for nine hours to be right up against the barrier. And I was, and it was outstanding. Even though I didn't recognize half the set list, it was still just a, a delight because they're incredible musicians. And their showmanship is the thing. I think that in, in recent tours, now that they're a stadium band, that they've, they've gotten really sophisticated in that respect, like animatronic puppets Um, All these ridiculous lasers. Matt's always sort of been on the cutting edge with tricking out his gear and their live setup. I mean, he's got guitars with chaos pads in them and stuff. So so it's always, you know, it's always a bit of a circus act, but like in a good way.
3: Mm -hmm. What's a chaos pad? It's this pad on the back of the guitar. You'll notice it and then he like I don't know, he puts his hand on it and it just like makes all these crazy noises.
0: Oh.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's like a Korg, um effects um pa- uh, it, I I think it's it, it's it's not something that's typically installed in the body of a guitar. I'm not a gearhead, but that much I do yeah, know. No.
0: Gotcha. And he
1: had it he had it custom built into his Manson guitar so that he could use the chaos pad while he was also, you know, making all these sick riffs and solos and stuff. So,
2: <laughs> so yep. curiously, the arc that we have all described is the opposite arc of their popularity in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> so they, uh, origin of symmetry and absolution didn't break like top 100 and had no singles in the U S black holes and revelations made it to number nine on the U S charts. And it did produce, I mean, there was a number of singles, but they just—they did not chart. They don't have a charting single in the U.S. until "Uprising" from the Resistance. It made it to number thirty-seven, and the and res, the Resistance made it to number three in two thousand nine. Followed by the Second Law, which made it number two in two thousand twelve, and then Drones to number one in two thousand fifteen. Now the charts are obviously different between two thousand and two thousand fifteen yeah. uh, yeah. in terms of you know what it takes to achieve certain things, but also you're counting downloads and and whatnot. The thing that I find fascinating about this band is that not only do they have an incredible number of singles that have charted around the world and the UK is obviously their base. So like all the way from Uno in 1999, do they have charting singles? There are charting singles or charting songs that were not singles that just got played because radio stations in the UK and France and even Mexico wanted to play more songs. So there are at least like 20 songs over the course of their career, starting with black holes and revelations to simulation theory that have gotten played all around the world just because they wanted more songs to play, which is (laughs) really an amazing thing in this era where bands can barely keep on one or two singles on radio, that, that radio stations across the world are like, no, 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 you've already put out five singles. We want to play another song off this record. And that that has a lot, I think, to do with their staying power. When you talked about them being a singles band now, you know who that reminded me of? Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters yeah. are able to yeah. knock two good singles that stick to radio across multiple formats for every record. And then you forget the rest of the record, but they're able to get those singles out and that's how they can tour stadiums and and do that. Well,
4: people don't really listen to albums anymore. They listen to curated playlists that like Spotify or something tells them to listen to. So people just do not dig into albums or records like they used to, which sometimes I wonder why bands keep trying to make albums and just don't try to get, um, Songs on soundtracks and be done with it. whatever their latest Marvel movie is and be done with it. But you know, it is what it is. There's that, tons of songs on these albums that are fantastic, but they're never going to hear it. Uh, we're never going to hear those.
1: that would just be such a depressing future, though. right I, I can't emotionally, I can't grapple with the idea <laughs> of an albumless future.
4: <laughs> oh, believe me, I can't either. That's what i do I mean, I listen to albums. i and uh, yeah, that would be a bummer, but it feels like that's the way it's going.
3: Well, it seems like, you know, maybe they're, they kind of do this. Um, maybe they could double down on it. Is, yeah, you got to, to your point, Tim, get that single, which that hasn't changed, right? That's been pop music since the start. You got to have one or two songs on the record that radio is going to embrace, but then really double down on the rest of the record being what you want to do. Cause ultimately, like, <laughs> you're probably only going to get one or two singles anyway on playlists and, and, and charting. So why not make the rest of the record? what people like us will spend time with and appreciate and hopefully what the artist wants to do. Um so maybe we can have both.
2: <laughs> maybe I am curious. He has a new there is a new muse single out, correct? That uh there's a Matt Bellamy. A Matt a Matt Bellamy, Bellamy oh, it's a Matt Bellamy yeah. single. Has anybody <laughs> listened to it yet?
1: Yes.
5: And what's it like? I haven't heard it. <laughs>
1: Um, honestly, the first thing I thought when I heard it is, this sounds like it belongs on Westworld. I don't know if anybody <laughs> wa- watches the show, but it, but it has a very distinct um, Ramin Djawadi uh, sort of melody to it. It's just Matt and a piano. Um, there's not a lot of uh, it's 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 a sort of like a ballad, a, a morose kind of ballad it it, it's honestly reminds me more of some of the earlier stuff than than anything that has come out from the band as a unit recently it it's it's good i i enjoyed it i don't know that i'm going to you know put it on repeat anytime soon sure but i'm i'm glad i'm glad they're being productive under lockdown Mm. (laughs)
3: and and tim i want to go back to your point about the foo Fighters because i think that's really important like they are very much seen as the sort of the torchbearers of rock and roll right now. And I think Muse is equally there. And there's a, maybe Foo Fighters gets a little bit more cred because Dave Grohl is so likable. (laughs) And, but I, I think Muse is, to me, even more important. Like just the level of musicianship, the fact that it's been the same three guys, the level of like, performance and production, like you get everything with this band, like everything that you could possibly want in pop music, like bombast, danceability, musicianship, virtuosity, songwriting, like vocals, amazing production. Like they, they have everything. So I think to me, it's like one a and one B in terms of what are the two most relevant rock bands out right now or continue to be that are
1: not legacy acts right yeah 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 Yeah. and like honestly my feelings on post black holes and revelations muse notwithstanding i will take them as representatives as torchbearers as the front line over i would fucking 21 pilots or imagine dragons or maroon 5 (laughs) any day (laughs) you know that like please let it be them (laughs) let it be them
3: i agree 100 percent
5: um, do, do, have you guys bought the Origin of Muse box set that came out December last year? Are you aware of yeah, this? Yeah,
1: it's right next to me.
5: <laughs> ah, have you opened it?
1: Yes, I mean that's that's what I use to brush up on a little bit of okay. my my teenage knowledge before this uh, recording. It's it's good. It's got remasters of the first two records, vinyl of the first two records. Some fun sort of odds and ends like old set lists, old promotional material, photographs that were never published, the uh, the history of the band and everything. But it but it ends. There's a hard stop at Origin of Symmetry, which is kind of a bummer because Absolution was where I I came on board.
5: But yeah. And it's got all the old uh, the demos, a lot of unreleased demos that didn't even make both albums or even um, B-sides. So.
1: Yeah, there's some really wacky stuff on there. Unfortunately, this is a real artifact of 2020. They're on CD, and I, I ha- do not have CD players in any of my laptops or in any of those. I, I well, I have to. My husband's an audio producer and engineer, so I have to get him to to rip the the CDs, uh, which he can do. It's just a matter of getting around to it.
5: Yeah, some of the some of the early demos are really. I see why they left them off the album you could see it was a band developing their sound their style and it's let's write out a bad song to get to the good song so
1: but some of them were so good so like i i i can't believe something like yes please or agitated which are just da-na-na, da-na-na. it's it's so intense and headbanging well, and addictive sides.
5: yeah there's there's some <laughs> called like connect the kettle lead and balloon attic and
1: oh yeah balloon Attic's earthquake. a
5: little <laughs> yeah you can you can see why they, they never made the album <laughs>
2: Darren, you said you had a story circa 2000 when they were touring. What was that?
5: Uh, well, it, it involved me yeah, interviewing the band. So I, because because I really liked the band, I would really push it onto the record company. I just said I'd really like to interview, interview the band uh, face-to-face because I'd done a lot of interviews over the phone, and they're, they're fine. But for me, it was meeting my heroes of bands I really, really liked. So... Um, For me to see Soundcheck, I hardly saw any Soundchecks, you know, back then at all. Um, You just weren't invited to them. So for me to see Soundcheck and then interview Muse as well as Feeder, because I I really like Feeder, and still to this day, I think they're a fantastic band. I don't know what they're like in America, but um, I think they're just a fantastic pop band. Um, Indie rock band, I should say, sorry. Um, Yeah, so I got to interview... um, Feeder and Muse, both backstage, see them both soundcheck, and I was I was in heaven. I I was a really young man just getting into uh, interviewing bands, and I got to see these two bands face to face, and I was just in awe. So <laughs> I, I suppose it's the fanboy coming out of me. So
1: I I totally empathize. I mean, I was such a Muse fangirl, like cutting out. You know, I used to I used to during my lunch hour at in high school I would go down to the bodega a block down and buy with my lunch money copies of Q NME uncut like all the British magazines which with the exchange rate it was no no small expense and I'd sit um in the hallways of my school paging through them and I used to tape like pictures of Muse to to my wall and everything and as I said my my parents hate them and my dad, dad like wants them nuked from orbit. So they were I, yeah they I got to meet the band. About
5: it. Yeah, I got to meet them again in 2000 and I think it was 3 or 2004. They toured Australia for the big day out. And by that state, I still love the band. That was that was their third album I believe and um, as I said earlier I was a collector of of all their all their singles or their promos and their promos especially were really different to the normal releases. They came in this kind of clear case that I'd never seen before. And I had a lot of them and they, they had a lot of the B sides on them. And I remember when I met the band, I had a few tickets signed and Matt Bellamy said, Oh yeah. Oh, you've got those. Oh, they're great. He said, I designed those. So, um, uh, he, he, they signed them all and I've still got them, um, hidden in storage back in Australia, but, uh, yeah, so the two times I've met them, they were just really nice and you know great to their fans.
2: That's excellent. I do not have any signed artwork <laughs> or CDs. I did spend a lot of money on those CD singles, getting them imported, and um, I'm pretty sure you can pick them up fairly cheaply now on, on Discogs. Yeah, you
5: can. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. You you had you always had to get the Japanese releases because they always came with those one extra. Those song. On. I bought the first. Yeah. Got the first
5: but- album. Um, I bought the when eBay was a thing back in ninety nine when you couldn't you know get imports.
1: Oh, so you got imports. the Spiral Static version.
5: I've, it's got a bonus disc of like eight tracks, um, six are B sides, two are live tracks, but it was a Dutch only uh, release because it was some tour tour edition. And of course, me Darren back then was. I need to own something different to the Australian release. I need the bonus disc, so <laughs> I probably paid—I probably paid fifty dollars for it, but I didn't care.
1: They had such great B-sides. Like yeah. I, I, I i never listened to Muse demos or B- I, I became a completionist on uh, Napster, or Kazaa, or whatever it was at the time, where <laughs> I was constantly digging up whatever alternate takes or or EPs. You know, any promotional material. That I could find, get my hands on.
5: Same here. <laughs> so, I've still got a lot of their CD singles. Yeah, great B sides. Yeah, I got UK ones, Aussie ones. So yeah, and like you, Tim, I paid a pretty penny for them. Yeah,
2: yeah. I I had to stop doing that because <laughs> I was but, doing but that my- with lots of bands. Yes, I my, do. <laughs> my
1: My cloud's parting moment was never hearing muse on CD. I mean that was that was the initiation, but it but it was the the night I saw them live. I was sixteen years old that my jaw just came off its hinges and that was that was it. That there was no looking back after that night.
2: Well, Jay would say it's because you never saw Kiss Live. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's true, I've never seen Kiss Live.
2: <laughs> um Let's talk about uh you know when we talked about Modest Mouse in the 90s and we talked about Spoon we sort of discussed at the end what did can you look back now and and see in the origins of this band what they were going to become in terms of them becoming a a a global pop rock phenomenon now maybe with Modest Mouse it was a little bit uh, quirkier, and it was maybe more unexpected. Maybe you could say the same thing. Spoon hasn't reached the same level, I think, of of global dominance the way that uh, that Muse has. But they definitely have become a cultural, especially in the United States, a cultural uh, touchstone for indie rock. So let me just ask you guys: when you look back now and you, you listen to Showbiz and taking in some of those EPs. Where was the was the DNA there for them to become a huge band in the two thousands?
3: I'll jump in because I think I touched on this a little bit. Um, yes, now because my my thought is when I listened to those early uh, that first record and the early EPs, a lot of what they did from that point forward the ing- is build on those ingredients. So it's almost like you could take a section of a song and think like. Oh, wow. What if you explored that whole section as like its own song (laughs) or, you know, this approach or this kind of tone? So to me, like the pieces and parts are all there. Um, The talent is there. The production quality and attention to detail is there. The work ethic is there. Like you can see all those parts just by experiencing that record um, and that early work. I think the part that was would have been hard to predict is a a band that has that much. I guess musical talent sometimes struggles commercially um, to figure out how to harness that and make pop songs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. say rush, for example, right? I mean, I think they're at that level of musical talent. so it, it would have been I think difficult at the time to really believe that they could figure out how do we take all of the all these ideas and all this capability and actually bundle it up in a way that you know you can play it on pop radio and people get it. Um, which Queen is another example, right? This, that figured that out. Um, so I think that would have been the missing, to me, the, the open question after listening to the first couple, um, even Origin of Symmetry. And if you would ask me that question then, I think that's the part that uh, I would have been uh, hard pressed to, to figure out if they could have really made that leap, which they ultimately did in the, in the subsequent records.
2: Anyone else with thoughts about. Their rise?
1: I am, I, to this day, mystified. Mystified that screechy little falsetto man (laughs) and his trio from Timoth are a global rock phenomenon. I mean, maybe it's because I was just surrounded by so many people at the time who didn't get it. Um, And I I do think that Muse, even as a, a global um arena band and 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 uh, w- with that kind of fan base and that kind of following I I do think that they are very polarizing you you either love them or you hate them I'm I'm just shocked because I I went from my first Muse show that my dad drove me down to in Philadelphia um which was part of the MTVU Campus Invasion tour they were supported by Razorlight of all things hey. um that they would go from that to, I don't know, I think it was two years later I saw them at Hammerstein Ballroom and a year later, Madison Square Garden. I, I, I was just stunned because even though they have the, they are in a sense the total package, like we were talking about the, um, you know, incredible musicians, musicianship, they're incredibly prodigious at their instruments, But they're also, as far as songwriters and arrangers are concerned, they have a really good sense of riff and groove and and how to make something catchy. There are those princy elements that they can harness, the, the, the queen bombast that they have deployed, and they are able to mix these kind of disparate elements into a pop formula that is incredibly appealing and i and i think that if they had stayed the band that they were i think that if if they had done you know an iteration on absolution or or origin of symmetry 2.0 that they wouldn't have blown up the way that they did but black holes and revelations demonstrated that they could be on that level and that they had a, a mass market appeal
3: the, the um, Prince call-out is really, really good. Just that, I'm with you, that sensibility um, and a, to be able to kind of pull little hooky ideas here and there and how to use rhythm and, yeah. And, and, and
1: proficiency at the instrument. I mean, yep. I mean, it's it's apocryphal that Matt Bellamy is classically trained. He isn't. I mean, he he had some flamenco guitar lessons when he was a kid, but he can't read music. He he's basically entirely self-taught and self-taught in in almost a vacuum. I mean, I don't want to to um, understate the, the, the extent to which uh, Tinmouth, Devon that that part of the world was just secluded from any music scenes going on in Manchester or London at the time. So they were really isolated and they just became so proficient at guitar, at, at, at bass, at drums. All three of them are incredible players. And Matt is just this incredible, osmotically inclined sponge for musical styles. And he's able to take these things and blend them together and spit them back out and make them sound like there's no other band that sounds like Muse, okay? You might want to say that Muse sounds a little bit like Radiohead, or maybe Muse is is pulling from Rage Against the Machine or, or, or pulling from Prince or pulling from Queen, but nobody sounds like Muse.
3: Yeah, it's like the ability to um, not only have an idea, but then the talent and the skill to actually execute it, <laughs> You know, which I think Prince can do and they can do. There's no limitation in terms of you hear something in your head and then to be able to actually convey that through your hands and an instrument isn't always possible when you hear that sometimes on records like they just can't figure out how to execute it they just don't have the talent or the skill or the right players but they're able to somehow do that through a probably just a lot of playing in their in their rooms and learning how to how to be musicians
5: for me i could see them becoming a big band especially with their third and fourth album because you can tell they're a bit more. Whether it's a, a new producer or not, I'm not too sure, but I can see they're a bit more polished, but not in a bad way. Um, they definitely wrote more radio-friendly kind of tracks, you know, tracks like "Hysteria," Butterflies and Hurricanes, you know, Starlight. You know, they, they're, they're very radio-friendly, so, and they were slaughtered on the radio. And so I can see why people become fans of them, like, even, like maybe not by the album, but just by the singles and would go to their show. Whilst well, the first two albums, I, the reason I think they released it as a box set because that was an era, you know, and and then they moved on to their third and fourth album, and then after that, their fifth and sixth records are just completely different as well. So, but it bewilders me how they're massive for their fifth and sixth records. I don't know. They're just they're just so different to the first four that I don't find them. The resistance, the single is is very much like the third and fourth record, but the rest of the album is just so different. So it kind of bewilders me why they became so huge. But I know their live show is absolutely amazing. And as we touched on it earlier, when they, um, when they were playing guitar, you could see it on the big screen, you know, and it's a massive light show. So I think people go for that as well as the music.
2: All right. I think we have properly revisited the origins of... Muses Symmetry. Yeah, see how I did that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, We need to thank our guests, Jay, for hopping on from all around the world and all around the United States on this uh, Sunday afternoon or evening, depending on where you're at. Um, You can find their pages over at digmeoutpodcast.com if you want to uh, listen to this episode that they're on or the other episodes that Marissa... Whitney and Darren have uh, joined us at. Now, if you're looking for Darren, we do have 17 Darren's uh, that are uh, (laughs) patrons and and been on the show. So you want to look for Darren Leach and uh, you'll find his episodes, Marissa, as well as Whitney's episodes are there as well as all of our guests at uh, digmeoutpodcast.com, which is also where you go to sign up for our box newsletter, weekly newsletter, eighties and nineties releases relevant to our podcast. Uh, New stuff with one-minute reviews for a couple of records each week, as well as, when we get the time, uh, 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 books and uh, films that are uh, streaming
3: on various services. It's a a one-stop shop for everything we're up to. Once a week, you get an email, so you don't have to... Be all over the socials trying to figure out what poll that we got got up and what episodes are coming exactly. and, and all that.
2: Because eventually, all the socials are just going to go the way of Friendster and, and MySpace. Let's just let's face <laughs> it. So you don't want to rely on those for your for your aggregating of information. You just want to come straight to us. And uh, <laughs> Patreon is where you go to uh, support the podcast. And as well, if you enjoy these episodes, Apple Podcasts is where you go to leave feedback. Uh, Marissa, uh, Whitney, Darren, thanks once again, all three of you for, for coming back. We love having you. Thank you. you. Um,
4: yeah, thanks. Really really yes. interesting talk.
1: Loved it. Thanks, guys.
4: Mm-hmm. Awesome. And uh, that's it. Well, no, there's
2: no more and. I said everything on my list. You've said everything. Everything has been said and I've said everything. Uh so for Jay, <laughs> I'm Tim, we're out, and we'll be back uh next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.